0: Hey, if you're a guest with us, my name is Rob. I'm one of the ministers here at New Hope, and uh, I get to preach, and I'm honored to do that. Uh, I want to remind you of what Matt said. We've got a gift for you. It's got some information about the church. Uh, We'd love for you to grab that and uh, ask any questions, get any of the information you need to get plugged in. And uh, one of the things we talk about each week is um, our discipleship groups. We really believe um, that your life will advance toward Jesus in a smaller environment. And so if you're um, not in a group or you're interested in learning more, we've got information Brochures, and uh, you fill out a blue card and turn it in, and we'll get you all the information you need to learn more about groups and get plugged into a group. Uh, We're going to continue our series in uh, the book of Nehemiah this morning, and we're going to be in just a few moments. We're going to be in chapter 6, so you can open your Bible or turn your Bible app on and get it ready. We'll be in Nehemiah 6 here in just a few moments, but I want to give you an update on a couple things, um, some housekeeping items. If you're new around here, um, uh, earlier in the year we started what we call the Reach Initiative. And this is a three-year strategic plan to hone in on our desire to be disciples who make disciples. And there's three areas of this initiative that we wanted to bring focus to. We wanted to reach out to lost and hurting people. And we wanted to have avenues, very clear avenues, that we could reach out to our community and serve people. we wanted to reach within uh, to develop godly leaders. And we wanted to create pipelines to develop leadership within our church. And then we wanted to reach up to God with all of our resources and we wanted to make our campus uh, something that would fit into our community and become a tool uh, for ministry purposes. And as, as you drove in, you kind of s- saw that part of it. And so many of us have been so consistent and generous in our giving to this REACH initiative. And I want to encourage you to stay strong and keep going uh, with your commitments to this initiative uh, for a couple of reasons. One, you see the progress in the building. And I'm going to be very clear we understand the building's not the point, but the building can be a tool that God uses to advance the gospel in the community. And particularly, we're excited for our kids area. And if all goes well next Sunday morning, which I say all goes well, and if you've been a part of a building project, you know, there are times when all does not go according to plan. But it looks like we're right on track next Sunday morning to launch in the brand new kids area. And we're so excited for that. And you can walk back there and get... There's still work to be done back there this next week, but you can get a glimpse as to what the kids are going to get to experience uh, and next week you'll see it in its completion. That's because of your generosity. Uh, I, I grew up, I didn't have much exposure to church, and I've worked through that effect on my own life, and I have never been so excited for my kids uh, than, than I am that they're a part of this church. Uh, and this church has got an incredible legacy and an incredible future, and I love that my kids are going to be in that area uh, being ministered to uh, by uh, just invaluable volunteers who dedicate their time and attention to teaching my kids and your kids and anyone else's kids about Jesus. So thank you for your generosity in giving to the REACH Initiative. The next update, though, is a part of the REACH Initiative, is the Mountain House. We used to call it the Willie House. It's a house over here, and our goal with this home is to turn it into a maternity home for women in need. Um, And so um, women will come and live there while they're pregnant and be taken care of. Now, along the way, there were some snags in this process because there's a lot of work that goes into making that doable. Um, And honestly, at times, it was discouraging um, and then the Lord began to work and do some cool stuff. And so behind the scenes, I want to bring them uh, some details to you. God's been working in some powerful ways. Not everything's worked out yet, and we're still praying to that end. We want to invite our whole church to pray uh, that the mountain house would become a reality. Uh, but there have been contractors and uh, lawyers and workers coming out of the woodwork, dedicating their time and their resources and their availability to make this thing happen and it's people from outside of New Hope, people in the community. Everybody wants to see this thing happen, and so we want to invite you to pray uh, that this would materialize and become a thing. We've got incredible people in our church. We've got Mel Sites and and Nancy Brownlee that have just dedicated so much time, and and the Langford family, and just people praying and working and making this thing happen. And We're grateful, Uh, but we're going to invite you to join us in praying that this comes together so we can meet this need. Again, a part of this great initiative we're involved in. If you want more information on the REACH initiative, you can jump on our website or grab a REACH booklet out here in the lobby. And if you have any questions, you just let us know. All right, let's shift gears, and we're going to jump into our series, uh, continuing our series in Nehemiah chapter 6, and we're going to learn some pretty cool things about leadership and about the workplace. And so if you've ever wondered, if you're working in the, wrong, the right environment or the wrong environment, if your job is where you should be, I think you'll find some encouragement from Nehemiah this morning that yes, in fact, it is where you need to be, it's just about how you approach it, and Nehemiah is going to teach us a valuable lesson about that. But I want to start out with a question. How many of you remember your very first job? Just remember, like, the first experience you had going to work? Now, I want you to take just a minute and tell somebody seated around you what your very first job was, all right? It's a, it's a fun question to answer. Go for it. My, uh, my first job, and honestly, I kind of want to hear it. I'm going to be asking some of you this question because some of you have probably got some incredible stories about your first job, and I want to hear them. My first job, I worked some jobs through high school, like at a movie theater and doing some different things, but when I graduated from college and got that first job, I worked at a garage door company, uh, and to say I hated it would be a gross understatement. I did not enjoy, it wasn't the, the work that I didn't enjoy, What well, it was the work I had to do. I didn't mind what everybody else was doing, but the work that I had to do, um, I had to sit in this cubby area and no kidding, I fielded the phone calls from all of the job foremen who didn't have what they needed from our company. and So I'd pick up the phone and I got a lot of new nicknames from a lot of construction working people that did not appreciate that we didn't get them the resources they needed and the time they needed it. So I sat there as a fresh graduate and here was my thinking. I hate this job. I've already told you that. And if I didn't, I hated it. Uh, The second was, I've got a degree in ministry and I want to be working in a church. I don't want to be here. This is not the place I want to be. And so I began to get discouraged. Uh, The the vulgar language and jokes that were passed around the office, the gossip, the slander, the rumors that were spread, people looking out for themselves. And I'd come home tired and I was newly married and I wanted to be in ministry and I didn't feel like I was in ministry and I'm stuck in this job. And it all kind of culminated uh, toward the end of my time there uh, because the church I was uh, volunteering, doing very, very part-time work for, was able to bring me on. uh, And so I was going to be able to quit this job. And I was so relieved. And uh, as I told people that I was not going to be working there anymore and told them what I was going to be doing, more than one person was like, oh, you're you're in ministry? Like, you're a Christian? (laughs) Like, like, wait a second. Shouldn't they know that? (laughs) Like, shouldn't my interactions with these people indicate something was different? Uh, that something uh, stood out, and in that moment, I just felt so convicted that I had completely missed an opportunity, that while I was so concerned with what I wanted and the satisfaction I got, I missed an opportunity to live on mission and have an impact in the lives of the people around me. See, this is one of the things you're going to pick up on in chapter 6 of Nehemiah, this principle that uh, our work is a form of worship, And the way we approach our work in the marketplace and in anywhere else that you're working is a form of your worship. That how we approach our jobs can worship the Lord. And for many of us, we miss these opportunities to do that very thing like I did. And so let's see how Nehemiah picks it up. Right away in chapter 6, he's exposed to some opposition and some difficulty. And in Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 1, it says this, Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall... And that there was no breach left in it. Then he gives us this this little disclaimer. Although, up to that time, I had not set the doors and the gates. So, uh, real quick here. um, Nehemiah had gone back to uh, his home to rebuild the walls. He felt a conviction for the people, a conviction from God. He left being the cupbearer of the king. Uh, He was in this prestigious... Uh, role of management in the kingdom for the most powerful person in the world and he left it to go and rebuild these walls and he's had opposition the whole time and so now he's rebuilding the walls and he's not quite finished yet and Sanbalat and Geshem sent to me so they send messengers to him and they said this come and let us meet together at I've tried to say this Hebrew word all week long but I'm going to give it a shot with you heck sorry I butchered that about the same way you would But let's go meet in the plain of Ono, but they intended to do me harm. So right away, we see there's progress in the building of the wall. It's actually to the point where there's no breaches left in the wall. The wall looks good. This project is going really well. There's only one little piece missing, and that was the doors for the gates being put in place. And so Nehemiah's feeling pretty good, and here comes the opposition. And they come in, and they've been opposing him. If you've been with us in this series the entire time. I mean, from the moment Nehemiah arrived on the scene to rebuild these walls... These people have been just, what are you doing, discouraging them and causing all kinds of frustration. And so now they sense, hey, the wall is still being built and they see their window of opportunity closing and they just zero in. We got one last shot. We got to get in here. We got to mess this up. And so they come to him and they say, hey, Nehemiah, I know we've had it rough and things haven't been good, but why don't you just come down off the wall and go meet with us in the plains over here in this beautiful spot. We'll just do a little conference. Uh, We'll come and you come and uh, we'll have a truce and we'll kind of apologize, things will get good, everything will be okay. And Nehemiah right away, he discerns something. He understood that leaders have to have the ability to discern. That is a leadership principle. If you're going to lead, you have to develop the ability to discern before you make decisions. Discernment's required. And so he discerns a few things. One, this is a pretty innocent invitation. Hey, Nehemiah, we want to come and just kind of talk to you. We want to meet with you. And Nehemiah discerns that if the invitation appeared innocent to him, it appeared innocent to everybody else who heard it. And so if he was to respond with frustration toward them, knowing, oh, you're just being jerks again, you're just being mean, you're just trying to stop the work, then other people would hear him respond to a very innocent and kind gesture with harshness, and it may compromise his leadership. So he couldn't just jump in and critique them. But he also discerned that the wall wasn't quite finished. I mean, it was almost done, and many people might have thought, it's finished enough that we can get going here. You can go meet with them. But he knew that the wall's not quite done, and why do they want to meet with me when the gates aren't finished instead of right after I'm done with the work? See, their only reason for doing this, and he calls them enemies. He discerns, you're still enemies. And he discerns at the end of chapter, or verse 2 that their intent was to bring him harm. And so what does he do? Instead of causing a scene that may compromise his leadership, and maybe it wouldn't, But there was a chance that it would compromise his ability to lead people forward. Instead of emotionally responding, he pauses for a moment, discerns what's going on, and now he offers them a response that will inevitably reveal their true motives and then give him the ability to keep leading people. And so he's very calm in this moment. And I wonder how many of us would would benefit from learning how he responded in our workplaces, in our homes, in our friendships and relationships, instead of the moment we're faced with opposition, responding with emotion, that we would discern what's going on here. And we would just pause for a moment to gather ourselves and make an informed decision on how we're going to respond the way Nehemiah did. Here's how he responds, verse 3. And so I sent messengers to them and said, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four more times this way, and I answered them in the same manner. So Nehemiah responds by saying that the work he's doing is too great. Like, I'm sorry, I can't come down right now. We can do this later. But right now, this work is too incredible. And you've got to ask the question, compare the work that he was doing before with the work he's doing now. I mean, before Nehemiah's the cupbearer to the king, he, was, he had reached the highest place of management that you could reach without being the king. He's the king's right-hand man. He didn't just drink the wine before the king drank it. He wasn't just a taste tester. He actually had the authority and access to resources to make decisions within the kingdom. He actually was the person who would approve or disapprove of somebody coming into the king's presence. He had reached the pinnacle of success, and he trades all of it to go to this rubble, this this town that's just a a heap of rubble on the outskirts of the empire, this broke-down place uh, full of poverty and, and lacking in success whatsoever. He gives up success for struggle. He gives up comfort for conflict. He gave all this stuff up, and yet he's in this place with only 1,000 to 3,000 people uh, and opposition coming from every angle, from the outside. And last week we looked at even the people arguing among the inside. He's got a bunch of people he's supposed to lead that don't want to be led, and, and they don't quite see what he sees, and he's got to lead them. Not only that, in the kingdom he sat comfortably. Now he actually participates in the manual labor. This dude's getting worn out. Let alone the discouragement that weighs heavy on his heart. And we can see that in the prayers that he expresses. He's got a lot going on. And in the midst of all of that, he says, this is a great work. What made it so great? Nobody around him would have said, that's a great work. They would have said, that is weird. No, a great work was what you were doing for the king. No one around him would have called him a success. No one around him would have said, keep doing this work. In fact, they would have said, you should retreat back to the comfort of the kingdom. This is not where you should be hanging out. This is not what you should be doing. You're giving up a lot of good to engage in a lot of worthlessness. But Nehemiah understood that it wasn't so much what he was doing as much as it was how he approached his work and who he was working for. See, Nehemiah understood that the motivation for his work is what made his work significant. It's not so much where he was working. It's it's not what he was doing. It's how he approached it. Every day he showed up, Every day he approached his work as though he was working for God. Every day he came on the scene and he understood my motivation is to bring glory and honor. And glory simply means I just want to make God famous. I want people to look at what I've done and I want them to see him. And I wonder in our workplaces if we battle discouragement. I feel stuck. I feel like I'm in this job. I feel like the job I'm doing is insignificant. It's not making a big enough difference. It's not having an impact. And I wonder if we would do good to stop focusing so much on what we're doing and bring our attention and focus to how we approach our work and who it is that we're trying to make famous, who it is we're trying to elevate in our workplace. In a couple weeks, we're gonna have what we call Missions Weekend. It, it used to be called Faith Promise, and it was a one time Sunday thing, where, but now we've extended it to a weekend, and we wanna highlight our global partners, our strategic partners globally that we partner with to make disciples in places that we can't quite reach to. So we partner with them, and they go to these different places, and globally, We're going to have a weekend to celebrate all of those partnerships on saturday uh, november the 5th we're going to have a discipleship training where we bring in some missions and some other people it's free for any of you that want to be a part of it you jump on our website and you register to be a part of that training and and we're going to have this incredible time of training saturday we're actually going to have a meeting on saturday night to discuss unreached people groups and on sunday we're going to have a missionary come in and share with us we're going to highlight some of our global partners one of the families that we partner with is ryan and Catherine king uh, Ryan grew up here at New Hope. Uh, he grew up here most of his life. He was here for VBS. They're the missionaries there. And they live now in Haiti. All right, they lived in Lexington before that. Ryan had a good job working in the insur- insurance industry. Things are good. So Catherine, Ryan, and Conrad now live in Haiti. And uh, Ryan would not call himself a missionary. Uh, if, if you were to meet with Ryan, he would say, I'm a teacher uh, living for Jesus. The term missionary um, It's what we would call him. He lives in Haiti and he's teaching kids, but he teaches math. He's sitting in the classroom and he just teaches kids. A couple weeks ago, uh, if you were paying attention to anything in the news, you know that a hurricane was headed toward Haiti. And it picked up to a level five hurricane. I grew up in Florida. When they say level three, you start getting concerned. Level four, uh oh, level five is like, oh no. And this hurricane was headed uh, toward Haiti to cause all kinds of destruction and damage. And it did, over a thousand lives uh were were taken in this hurricane and it leveled things nobody would have blamed ryan and Catherine for being evacuated from haiti in fact new hope we would have come alongside them and get them out of there if we if they wanted it nobody would have blamed them for getting away from the path of that hurricane and getting out of that place so that they could be safe but they responded the way nehemiah did i cannot come down why should the work here stop because we run and so they weathered that storm, and it was difficult, and it's hard, and it's caused a lot of damage. But a few days after the hurricane, there's no way that Ryan would have known that one of his students in his math class would come to him and say, I need Jesus, a young man by the name of Saul. And so because he stood his ground when the enemy told him to retreat and run, because he stayed put, because he said, this work is too great for me to leave, this happened just a few days after the hurricane. And this young man's eternity was changed forever because he had a teacher who stayed. Now, you can look at this a hundred different ways and call him a missionary if you want to. He'd say, I'm a math teacher who decided it's worth it. that in my workplace, I could just focus on teaching math or I could focus on teaching math for the glory of God. You see, Ryan understood what Nehemiah understood, that it's not so much what we do, it's how we do it and who we do it for. That it's our motivation that makes our work significant. So it doesn't matter whether you're a mechanic, a school teacher, a principal, a barista, a financial consultant, a carpenter, a firefighter, anything else that you do, all of those jobs are represented here in New Hope that I just listed. And many, many, many more. What you do can be your mission field. And we learned that from Nehemiah. My, Nehemiah's mission was not the comfort of the kingdom. It was the rebuilding of a wall to the glory and fame of God, so that when people looked at Nehemiah, they inevitably saw his God. Now, you, can, you, you don't have to be uh, someone with the title pastor or missionary. In fact, I would honestly say that you probably have a greater chance of having a greater impact without those titles. Like, honestly, I heard one person say, when I became a pastor, when someone became what I do for this church, when they stepped into that role, they left the ministry. They're no longer in ministry. They just they, they sit and they train people to go do ministry. And to a degree, I think they're right. To a degree, I think they are right. That it's our, it's our job for everybody here to live the mission. Everybody here is a missionary. I love the way Tim Keller says it. He says this, every good endeavor, even the simplest ones, Pursued in response to God's calling to make disciples, can matter forever. That is what the Christian faith promises that no matter what it is that you're doing, if you do it for the glory of God, you can have a forever impact. The Apostle Paul said it this way in Ephesians chapter 2. He said, For we are all his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that, sh- that we should walk in them. I want you to notice something. These good works that Paul speaks of, they're not career specific. He does not say we are all his workmanship if we do this, if you work in this career field. No, he says we are all his workmanship. We are all Those of us who are in Christ Jesus, he has designed us to do good work in our workplace, which means when you wake up tomorrow and church is over and you're done this evening watching maybe the Colts win, All right, you're doubting them just like I do, like, I don't know, maybe they'll win, maybe they won't tonight. We wake up tomorrow either feeling good about their win or we feel a little bit discouraged about yet another loss and we wake up and we walk into our workplace, we get our coffee, we get in our car, we drive to work, we get out, we walk into the workplace. In that moment, because of what Jesus has done in your life, you take a step into the mission field the moment you walk into your office. And your coworkers and your boss and your employees and your clients, they are all the people you do ministry to. And it's not determined by what you're doing. It's determined by how you approach that work and who it is that you're motivated to work for. We're all called to this. And I want you to know when you begin to see your work this way, with clarity, that your work is a place of worship. The enemy will attack. And if he can't remove you personally from your workplace, he's going to try hard to plant seeds of discouragement. So he'll do things like he does to Nehemiah in chapter 6, verse 5. In the same way, Sanballat for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. So this letter was going to be opened up in front of as many people as could hear it, and they were going to read these accusations against Nehemiah. If we can't get you away so that we can take you out and hurt you, then we're going to hurt your reputation and and compromise your leadership that way. Verse 6. In it was written, it's reported among the nations that, and Geshem also says it. So Geshem, one of their guys, right? So it's reported among the nations, and then this guy who is just standing right here, he said it too, right? That you and all of the Jews intend to rebel, and that is why you're rebuilding the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There's a king in Judah, and now the king will hear these reports. So now we're going back to Artaxerxes in Persia, and we're going to tell him what you're doing to try to rebel against him and become the new king. And then, when, when we do that, now you're going to want to come and hear from us. Let me elaborate on what they're doing here. This is what they're saying. Hey, Nehemiah, you wouldn't come when we sent our first invitation or our second, third, fourth, or fifth, so we want the truth to be known. We're going to expose you. We want everyone to know two things. First, is your motive was evil in Jerusalem. You didn't come to rebuild a wall. You came to take over and be the king, the express purpose of collecting a group of people around you so that you could lead a revolution. Furthermore, the method about doing, you're going about doing this is also evil. You want to be king, so you're spreading prophets around the land to point everybody to be you and not for you to be king and not Artaxerxes. So we're going to send word back to the king. Then you're going to come. Then you're going to visit with us. They're spreading rumors and gossip and lies. They're slandering his name so that everybody around him, it's like a game of, if you ever played telephone with a group of kindergartners, you'll never get the message you started with when it gets to the end of the line, right? It gets twisted and turned and that's funny and that's cool and that's mean. And by the time it gets to you like, I did that, not one word, not a single word is where I started. And that's what they want. They want these lies to spread like fire. We're going to tarnish your reputation to the point where people don't want to follow you. And then the work will stop. They're slandering him. Their second attempt is simply to gossip and to spread rumors. Now, I learned three things about rumors and gossiping and slander, I think, uh, that we can learn just from these passages here real quick. And then we're going to continue on in the rest of the chapter. But the three things about gossip that really stand out to me that we need to consider when we're either guilty of it or we need to consider when it's being done to us. There are three things. The first thing is this. You consider the source. Consider the source. It's, not, it's hard, if not impossible, uh, to get accurate information when there's no source. Right? They, Nehemiah's accused this way. It's reported among the nations. Really? Who? Uh, this guy, Geshem. He's been with us the whole time, opposing you. He said it too. Right? Wait a second. Who's saying it? Uh, among the nations, that's a lot of people. Who, there's no source at all. They're cowards. They're just lying and they're making up lies and gossip and rumors. And here's what I find fascinating about it. As they begin to spread these rumors and stuff, and there's no source, the same thing happens to us in our world today. Right? Anytime I get an email that's critical, that makes an accusation, or it's rude, or it's mean, just being honest with you, and it's, I've heard many people say, or everyone's saying this, I don't pay attention to it. And I never will. Anytime I get a note that's critical, anytime that we receive a note here at the church... All right, if we receive something in the church and it's signed anonymous or there's no signature on it, we don't read it. And we never will. If you have the courage to be critical, have the courage to put your name behind it. That's the nature of it. Now, criticism's not bad in and of itself, but cowardly criticism is. And it's not to be accepted. It's gossip when there's no source. Consider the source. The second thing you consider is the substance. What is being said in this criticism? Is it true or is it false? Nehemiah right away notices, wait a second. This is such an exaggeration. That's not what happened. None of this is going on. He just listens though. None of the the material is accurate. Once again though, in your world and in your life, if somebody's critical of you, or you hear a rumor, or you hear gossip, and you begin to do the homework, and you realize none of this is true, you don't have to pay attention to it. Dismiss it. Because if somebody's going to respond emotionally and spread rumors and slander, but not do the hard work of context and figuring out what is true and what isn't true, then they haven't done the hard work to deserve being heard. So you consider the source, you consider the substance, and you consider the setting. When it comes to gossip and slander, it's important to consider the intended audience. Like these people came, they had no intention of contributing or helping Nehemiah. It was not constructive in the slightest bit. They showed up. They said, we're going to read this letter so as many people hear this as possible. And we're not here to help. We're just here to accuse you and to criticize you. We're not here to build you up. We're not here to bring you any kind of help or assistance. We just want to bring you down and hurt you. They wanted to satisfy their own desires instead of simply going to the leadership in private and saying, hey, this is what we think is going on. Correct it. They didn't want to be corrected. They were convinced they were right and no one could convince them otherwise. And so they spread slander and gossip. So you got to consider, is this actually intended to help? Or is this intended to bring harm and disunity? I love the way Chuck Swindoll says it. Not every critic is an enemy of the faith, nor is every person who criticizes of the devil. However, a person who is genuinely interested in the truth uses their tongue to secure and to maintain the truth. Guys, I'm convinced that one of the biggest enemies to the church and the advancement of the gospel is a loose tongue and a loose keyboard. People who don't consider what they're going to say, they just speak. People who disagree with something and just lash out in their emotion. James in the New Testament says it's our most difficult thing to tame in your entire life will be your tongue. Your words matter and they hurt, so watch them and be careful with your words. And when you hear gossip, don't contribute to it because it's not going to help anything. Shut it down in the moment. I love the way Dave Dave Ramsey says it. He has a a two-strike policy. Everyone starts out with strike one. Strike two, you gossip the first time you get corrected. Strike three, you're out. You're fired. Get out of the office. Clear out your desk by four o'clock. We won't tolerate any gossip because it does nothing but hurt people. It's so difficult to advance the gospel when people are sowing cords of discord and Disunity. Now, criticism and healthy dialogue, those are awesome things. And they should be welcomed all the time. They're not always easy. It's not always uh, something that's fun to walk through when you're being criticized and it's constructive criticism and you sit down and have a healthy dialogue. They should always be welcome. And here's what I want to say to you. That's always welcome in our church. But when it's not healthy and it's intended to harm and not help, it should not be acceptable. And at our church, we will not tolerate gossip and slander and rumors. They must be shut down. Because they hurt the heart of God, and they prevent His mission from moving forward. Nehemiah understood this, and so here's how he responds, verse eight. He said, "I sent to them, saying, "No such things are as you say that, that you say have been done. You're inventing them out of your own mind, for they just wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work. They'll stop working on the wall, and it'll stop being finished. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands." Nehemiah does three things. First thing is, he uh, takes care of the lie. He says right away, "None of this stuff's been done. Like evaluate everything. None of it is finished. None of that, nothing of what you're saying is a true reality. You're lying. The second thing that he does is he calls out the lies. He calls out their lack of sources. He says, you just made this up in your head. Give me one viable source. You're making this stuff up. Give me one source and I'll go to the source and we'll deal with it. But they couldn't do that because there was no source. It was just a lie. And then he addresses the setting. Everybody around him would have heard his response. This isn't true. You're making this up in your head, and you're intending to just hurt people. Stop. He tries to shut it down. And then he does what every good leader should do. He prays, God, this is getting heavy. This is so discouraging. This is so difficult. And if you're honest, you've been there. The words of other people cutting deep, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me, is a lie. Words hurt. And they sit deep in our heart, and they attack our identity, and they make us question our our mission. And what he's saying here is, your words matter, so choose them wisely. Don't contribute to gossip and rumors. Put them to an end. Build people up. Be constructive for the sake of helping, not being right, and not pushing your own agenda. Now, I'm going to summarize for you verses 10 through 14, uh, but they don't stop there. They think to themselves, okay, good, you want to shut down the rumors? Uh, strike two for us, right? Their first strike, we're going to just get you off the wall and we're going to kill you. Strike two, we're going uh, to compromise your leadership by sowing uh, everybody's doubt and just contributing to it. Put seeds of doubt in everybody's mind. That didn't work. You squashed our rumors. Now, why don't you just come down and come meet with us? We'll go into the temple and meet. And they thought, if we can't get rid of him, we'll make him violate the law of God. And in violating God's law, he'll come into the temple and God will kill him and then it'll be over. It'll be done. What they didn't consider or chose to ignore was Nehemiah's deep love for the law of God. He loved God's word. And so the moment that 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 presented itself, he knew right away, no, I can't go in the temple because I know God's word and that's not something I'm allowed to do, so I'm not going to do it. And he knew right away, he discerned their motive to hurt him again and he put an end to it. I'm not going. This isn't going to happen. He puts an end to it. Now, he also ends with a prayer. God, please, Please remember us. And then in verses 15 and 16, it says this. So the wall was finished in the 25th day of the month of Elah. And in 52 days, the wall was finished. And when all of our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and felt greatly in their esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. So look, he says, hey, we went forward with it anyway, and God provided like God always provides when we do the right thing. When you're in your office and you don't pay attention to the gossip and you don't contribute to the gospel and when things are said about you and you just tell the truth all the time and you always do the right thing and you trust God with the consequences of it, it's proof right here what we said last week that just trust God with the consequences of doing the right thing, he always does. He always provides, and God comes through, and the very pain they wanted to inflict on Nehemiah had been pushed right back in their own faces, and it was self-inflicted because they refused to see the work of God, and they had to sit in their own, uh, their own pain of being wrong the entire time. And so now everything they wanted to happen to Nehemiah had happened to them, and Nehemiah walks good. So there's some principles here that we learn about our work and the things that we're doing and how we should approach it. And the first one is this. I want you to understand that God's glory, so making God famous, and his mission in the world for you, they're more important than your image, your reputation, and your comfort. Nehemiah's image was tarnished when he left the kingdom, his reputation was tarnished, and his comfort was taken, and he still stepped in to rebuild these walls. You know, it's fascinating to me when you don't pay attention to yourself and you kind of forget yourself, you're able to glorify God. So in your workplace, it's not about your 401k. It's not about your retirement. It's not about your paycheck. It's not about your reputation. It's about when I walk into this place on Monday morning and every day after that, it's not like, oh, when will Friday get here? It's like, oh, no, I've got a week to do some ministry with some people in this place, and I'm going to do my best because his glory is more important than mine. But on the same token, God's glory and mission, they're more fulfilling. You see, when we work a, a, a job, a full career, And you get everything that you worked for. You get the money you needed. You get the retirement you needed. You finish the job. Um, There's going to come a day when you walk out and they clear out your cubicle and they give you the nice watch or whatever else they give you. And then you're done. And then they bring in the 22-year-old to replace you who will work there for the next 50 years, 60 years. And you're gone and he's in and that's it. The fulfilling part is not getting what you want out of your job. The fulfilling part is actually living the mission of God within your workplace. It's using work as worship. It's being able to worship God at work by ministering to people so that when you leave, you've affected and impacted lives forever. It's doing what Ryan did. I'm a teacher, but this work is worth it. And Saul's life is changed forever because he had a teacher who stayed and who viewed his work as worship. And the same is true for us. So two questions that you can ask yourself, and we'll finish up. Am I approaching my work as a mission? I I Just really, just take the week. Simple question, write it down somewhere, keep it with you. When you When you pull up into the parking lot tomorrow at work, I want you to pull that question out and just look at it. Am I viewing what I'm about to go do as a form of worship? Is this my mission? Am I living on mission in the workplace? Second question is this. When the enemy attacks, he's going to attack in this way, how do I respond to gossip and slander when they're pointed at me? Is it an emotional outburst, or is it, no, I've got to discern that the way I handle this will impact the mission that I'm called to live in this workplace. So will you respond to the gossip, the slander, and the rumors with great discernment to reveal motives and advance the mission? How do you respond to the temptation to gossip about someone or something that does not involve you Because it's coming. Some of you are like, yeah, it's coming tomorrow morning. I'm going to have a chance to speak into something. And so I want you to ask a couple questions of yourself. Does, Does me contributing to this help solve the problem? If not, stay quiet, please. Does me sharing this information with this other person, are they able to contribute to the solution? And if they're not, stay quiet. The temptation is when you have information, you feel like you have power. And when you have power, you want other people to know it. And so you want to, that's why when you respond, when someone says, hey, did you hear about this and this? You're like, yeah, I heard about it. They told me first. They didn't tell you first. They must have told me first. I'm the first one to know. That's awesome. I already knew. That's why we respond that way. We're like, yeah, I knew before you. Of course I knew. I know everything. I'm always involved. Everyone loves me. They tell me everything. That's how we feel, right? That's in the moment. You want everyone to know that you knew first. But, But the real question you should be asking is, does you knowing or you helping someone else know really help anyone else? And if it doesn't, let it go. Let it go and focus on the mission. I want you to consider what it would look like this week if you began to change your approach to work. If your workplace became the mission, and when temptation came, the mission, the mission was stronger than the temptation. Let's pray.